0: Hello, and welcome to the Newberry Report, where grown women read children's books for fun and then argue about them for more fun. And today on the podcast, we're talking about Bridge to Terabithia by Katherine Patterson. Newberry Report. The The Newberry Report. Um, I, as always,
1: am still and will be (laughs) Carrie Caston. Yay! She will not change her name if she ever gets married or goes into witness protection. She's just going (laughs) to be, nope, this is my name. I will go down swinging. (laughs) I actually had a conversation with my father. I'm getting married in November.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Not that it's an achievement in life. Do whatever you want. I'm just at a point where it seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. and uh, (laughs) Tax breaks. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Telling me we can both get health insurance for a job. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I had a conversation with my dad because my dad was like, very mad at my mom for, like, their entire marriage because she never changed her name. And so I said to my dad, I was like, I'm just not going to change my name because, like, I have a – you know, like, if you Google me, like, stuff that I want comes up and whatever. And so um – And he was like, you know, the way Social Security is going, the fewer times you change paperwork with them, the better. And
1: I was like, wow, you have a mold. He's come around. Or he's just bitter and resentful. (laughs) Or I'm keeping his name. So like. That's all he wanted. That's all. He just wants more castings in the world. (laughs) Oh, well. Well. Great. I'm Carolyn
0: Burns. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I meant to introduce you to everyone. It's Okay. Um, hopefully you recognize her voice by now. Well if this is your first episode,
1: welcome.
0: Welcome. I too love Bridge Terabithia, which I'm guessing is why you're here. Great one to start on. Oof. Mm. It's gonna be rough, but we're gonna get through it together and we're gonna we're gonna feel good, I think, at the yeah. end. We're yeah. gonna all feel like we should just go out into the pines and give thanks to the spirits once we're done.
1: I'm very excited about this one. I This is a very common refrain in this podcast, but I never read this as a child.
0: Wow, this is your first time reading
1: it. This is my first time. Well, I uh, this is embarrassing to admit on... Uh, the national audience that we have. International. Canada can listen, to. I mean, anywhere, really. Australia's anywhere. got
0: a really blossoming
1: podcasting summit. Hi, Australia. Nice to meet you. Uh, I never read this. Um, slash, I have a very poor memory, and it's very common for me to find out that I have read or seen things years ago. And it usually happens about 75% of the way through the book. I suddenly go like, I know how this ends! And I freak out, and, and I kept waiting for that because this feels like a book that everyone read. Yeah. And there's still a chance I did and just have very horrible like goldfish memory Um, but I don't think I ever read this because the ending came as a complete shock to me oh I feel like I ruined it when we were (sighs) talking about no you didn't I think even when we were talking about it it was just like I don't know what that means I guess I'll find out (laughs) oh wow
0: Well, good. I'm glad that none of our um, preliminary conversations about the book ruined
1: the ending for you. No, I still didn't see it coming. I think I was so engrossed in the story that it just didn't seem like a possibility. But we'll get to that. Yeah. So, of course, we are in the year 1978.
0: Lean back. Try and remember or remember what your parents told you about it. Disco. Google. Wasn't it dead?
1: Oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know.
0: Burning question. Everybody wants to know, Carolyn Burns, did you like it?
1: I... Really did. Yay. it's so simple. It's yep. such a simple book, but it's it packs such a punch. And I I found myself getting like overwhelmingly emotional, like tears welling up in my eyes, like lump in my throat, multiple different times. And that that's hard. That doesn't happen very often, especially uh, I think not. Uh, no, that's I'm not even going to say, especially not with children's lit, because that's not true. Yeah. But especially not with the books we've read so far yeah. in the podcast. I can see I got like interested or intrigued or, or emotional, but not in like a physical, visceral way. Yeah. Um. And for a book, that's what my co- my it's copy tiny. is 125 pages. Yeah. Like way to go, Catherine Patterson. She's one of my <sighs> favorite Patterson. You're wonderful. I cannot
0: wait to uh, until we get to uh, Jacob Have I Loved. Because um that one I have read more recently than this one. And uh this one I don't know if I had read since I read it the first time and it just I remember it like just sticking with me forever. Um till now anyway, <laughs> when I reread it. <laughs> the forever that was from the point of reading till this day. Um but Jacob have I loved, I've reread three or four times, like once every five years. I'm like, let me just go back to that book. Um, I'm very excited to read it for the first time. <laughs> for those of you that have had not have not had
1: the great fortune to read this book, we should give you a quick summary. All right. So this is the back of the book of The Bridge to Terabithia. Jess Ahrens' greatest ambition is to be the fastest runner in the fifth grade. He's been practicing all summer and can't wait to see his classmates' faces when he beats them all. But on the first day of school, a new kid, a new girl in italics, boldly crossing over to the boys' side of the playground outruns everyone. That's not a very promising beginning for a friendship, but Jess and Leslie Burke become inseparable. It doesn't matter to Jess that Leslie dresses funny or that her family has a lot of money, but no TV. Leslie has imagination, also in italics. Together, she and Jess create Terabithia, a magical kingdom in the woods where the two of them reign as king and queen, and their imaginations set the only limits. Then, one morning, a terrible tragedy occurs— only when Jess is able to come to grips with this tragedy does he finally understand the strength and courage Leslie has given him.
0: So did you read that before you read the book? I didn't. Ah, uh, I see. Purposefully. Yeah. I usually
1: don't. I don't yeah. I, I'm don't. i weird like that. I don't like to read the back of the books. Yeah. I don't like to watch trailers. Mm-hmm. Like I like to just go in knowing nothing. I think it makes for a really uh, poignant experience. Mm-hmm. So when I read it after, I was... Mad because I was like the back of the book gives literally the entire plot away. It doesn't say what I mean. Something bad happens in every book. It doesn't. It. I, I understand. Like it's it's not that it's uh, spoiling it, but it's it's interesting. It literally starts at the beginning when he meets her, and it, or when he's running, then he meets her, then a tragedy, then he grows up. And I was like, that's all 125 pages. <laughs> well, it's only 125. I mean, that's a
0: true. Paragraph is a pretty good description. Although they don't work in that he's a painter or an artist at any point in there, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. Which is wonderful. My I love this book. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was pretty evident, so I didn't want, feel like we needed to do the Carrie. Did you like this book section? <laughs> but one problem I've always had with this book, and I will um, I will come clean that my imagination is not super strong. I've never been a really truly imaginative kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have problems reading books in that respect, but I don't necessarily have a very vivid image in my head of, like, what is happening as I'm reading a book. Mm -hmm. So for me, Terabithia was, like, never that important because, like, the amount of text devoted to Terabithia is actually quite small compared to, say, the amount of time they talk about him drawing or him painting Mm -hmm. or the amount of time that Leslie spends with her dad working on the house. (laughs) It's almost the same amount of time refinishing the floors as they spend in Terabithia. So one of the reasons I never wanted to see the movie uh, although I think there may there may be more than one. I don't know. But there, I knew I never wanted to see them, a movie version of it because I feel like it would have been about Terabithia. And just that's not – that was like such a specific aspect of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And it didn't define their relationship. It was just like the most – one of the most eye-opening experiences that he had with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, of course, the cause of her death. Ah. Um, but – it's—I don't know. To me, there wasn't, like, a super vivid, like—it wasn't, like, Narnia. I know she compares it to Narnia, but it wasn't—Narnia takes place in—you know, the Chronicles of Narnia take place, for the most part, in, in your, Narnia. yeah Like, we spend very little time in England. It's, like, also a war happening. And then they die. <laughs> to me, it's still like, what? Um, but, but this so little happens in Terabithia. Yeah. Um, That—I don't know— I, Maybe this is a little bit like, is it a good title? I think it is a good title because I think it does encapsulate their relationship nicely. But I don't
1: think the book is about Terabithia. I agree. And, I mean, if we're speaking directly about the title, what do you think about the title not just being Terabithia but the bridge to Terabithia? The bridge doesn't come into play until the very end. And it's honestly – uh, like it, it became so loaded towards the end when I was like, oh, why is it called Bridge when they always swing to Terabithia mm-hmm. on a rope, and that's like the official entrance into the kingdom, and then the rope breaks. Spoiler, and that's where you can't the say def- spoiler after the thing. What you have to say spoiler before, so people have time. I to can stop. say spoiler anytime <laughs> I want. You can. It's a free country. <laughs> um, spoiler. <laughs> It just has no weight. <laughs> uh, if you're listening to this, you don't care about spoilers. I hope, and if you do, please don't angry email me. <laughs> um, but the the bridge only comes in in the last like five pages when yeah. he when he puts he like kind of creates this bridge, and it's kind of like the second iteration of Terabithia because Leslie was such a big part of the creation and and this sort of um, making it what it was because just didn't really. He just showed pro-offer up. Pro-offer <laughs> a lot to uh, the kingdom other than his presence. Proffer, Carrie. <laughs> it just should be right. <laughs> but it's really, you know, that's sort of the second iteration of now Terabithia is yeah. this new kingdom that he's sharing with his sister and the new queen uh, and the bridge going to it. I just thought it was interesting to, yeah. n- to name it that. Did you have the same response? Yeah,
0: well, I think that in that respect, it sort of says it's not about the loss. It's about the growing that comes after it is sort of what I I think it's about the recovery. It's about the living on. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of what it it was for me. Um, But I agree. Like, it, it sort of feels like the whole book was leading up To him being able to move on, and I don't necessarily know that that's fair to Leslie. Although, like, there's probably something to be argued that keeping Terabithia alive is a way of integrating Leslie into his life as he moves forward. So um, I accept it and I understand it, um, but I just don't want to see adaptations where like they make a castle <laughs> and, like, there are foes outside the castle and suddenly it's like lord of the Rings. like yeah. that's it's not about it's not about their ability to manufacture other worlds mm. but rather about their ability to find connection and uh, humanity in another 10 year old yeah 12 10 10 they're in fifth grade okay and i, I think that's interesting actually um the, the age of 10 is so common, I think. Between 10 and 12 is so common in, in children's literature. But in particular, there's something about 10, 11. Mm-hmm. Um, we get into, like, Ramona Quimby, age 8. But even most of her stuff takes place when she's 9, 10. And, and I think the fudge books take place around fourth grade. And it's like this... Fourth and fifth grade in particular are, is this place that's, like, you're too old to be a kid but too young to be an adolescent. Like, the idea of um, liking somebody is still a little bit foreign. Um, sex as an idea is still kind of foreign if in your, like, brain at all. I mean, I I, I took note in particular of this. So they name themselves king and queen. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, a complete sexlessness about that like it's not like they're married it's not like they (laughs) wooed each other you know like it's like they have these titles of equal weight that just happen to be usually a married couple yeah um yeah so i i just wanted to point out how interesting 10 is it's like (laughs) i remember when i was 10 we had a science class where we were talking about the north pole Mm -hmm. and how like well there's not really land there, you know, like it freezes up pretty hard during the colder times, but often, um, it's just a, a series of you know, glaciers or, or what have you. There isn't like land, land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Whoa, if I didn't believe in Santa Claus, like I wouldn't believe in Santa Claus now. <laughs> it's like, Of course, you if this is true, then also like Santa can create a house that's not on land or or whatever, right? So, like, there's ways around it, but it's magic, there it is real. <laughs> Of course. <gasps> Spoiler. Yeah, 10 is this age where, like, you start getting endowed with this sense of, like, reality in a way that you're
1: almost ready to start taking it in, you know? Well, I think that 10 was an interesting age, too, for... Uh, I'm, I'm going to start a conversation that I have no authority to have. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you've been 10. I, I have been 10. Um, but I, I left this book sort of with the question in my mind of like what are the repercussions of this death going to have for him because he's 10. Yeah. He's young, you know, and uh not that experiencing a death and having that loss at a young age doesn't mean that that won't follow you for the rest of your life, but it's I think that it's going to be dealt with differently for a 10-year-old than a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old yeah. or a full-grown adult. Yeah. You know, everyone sort of deals with loss in a different way, and in some ways I wonder if like I remember being very young and being like 10 or younger and having friends maybe just move away, Yeah. which when you're that young, you have no say in that and you can't really do anything and like keeping in touch just really isn't much of an option, at least not when I was young and there was no digital revolution. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to write letters, (laughs) Um, but it's still... Like, stung like a loss. And, I'm again, I, I never yeah. experienced, like, death as a child. But I, I remember thinking, I'm like, he, he obviously goes through the stages of grief. And all of it is very, like, at the moment very difficult for him to get through. But, like, what will this actually translate into f- when he grows up and, like, him as an adult?
0: Well, I feel kind of okay about him because, like, somehow, magically, everyone's able to fall into place in a very supportive way that I would not have anticipated from his family, yeah. like, early on. There's a lot about family politics, not just about Jess's family or Leslie's family, but there's that conversation that um, Leslie has with Janice Avery. Is that her name? Yeah. With Janice Avery in the bathroom where it gets out that Janice's father beats her and, like, Everybody gets beaten by their parents in this world, or lots of kids do, but it's not something that you talk about. Yeah. And it's like the greater fear is people finding out that this happens, not that it is actually occurring, which is, like, horrible. <laughs> it that was really difficult for me to read. Yeah. And we have this all of this pressure from his dad to, be like, be a boy or be a man, and, well, you're you have to be a man now, and why are you drawing, and, like, this negative attention from his mother – to, um, like, integrate with the family. She sort of holds the girls separately from him and and treats him a lot like she treats the father, I think, in terms of what his responsibilities are. And for the father to just, like, show up full force when Leslie dies Mm -hmm. was so impressive. You know, it's almost like I wonder if he would have done that had he been working. Um, I think they luck out a little. It's a little fortunate for for the family and for Jess in particular that the father wasn't working at that time. Yeah. Because I don't think he would have been able to take the time off. And, but he is, like, so right after um, Jess gets home from visiting uh, Leslie's family, which I think the fact that we, we're just starting at the end, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which we always do because it's so hard to avoid, but we don't see Leslie's mother ever after Leslie dies. And I think that that's pretty telling of how Horrific It must be for her. Like that only mm-hmm. only Bill, only the father is able to like – and even just barely. I think we get two or three sentences from him. The And Jesse comes home from visiting uh, Leslie's parents and the, their family, and he leaves this wake effectively. He mm-hmm. leaves it early. He doesn't even remember leaving. He just remembers running home. He hits Mabel like right when he gets home. When she's, uh, I forget what she asks him, but the first thing he does is smack his sister. And then he runs upstairs, takes his Christmas gift, and throws it into the creek. And the father follows him the whole time. When Jesse first finds out that Leslie has died, he just like runs out of the house, runs. It, it appears sort of directionless though, because it, it, it's not like he's running to Leslie's house. So he just sort of runs, and the father gets in the pickup truck and runs after him or chases after him and and parks in front of him and the father handles things in such an incredibly loving way that I was nervous he wasn't going to be able to do
1: it's it's so wonderful to see like the father character really come full circle yeah because for me you start off where with Jess painting such a vivid picture of this very sort of like patriarchal society men show no emotion men you know behave like men and all of those right. things that, that we're trying to sort of be more forward thinking about these days and and obviously reading a book that's almost 50 years old it's it's almost 40 years old it's it's difficult to read um, but at the beginning of the of the book there's this great little chunk of information that he gets about his dad um, and it's basically his dad comes home from work and Maybell, runs over to the truck, um, and it says, Jess watched his dad stop the truck, lean over to unlatch the door so Maybell could climb in. He turned away. Dern lucky kid. She could run after him and grab him and kiss him. It made Jess ache inside to watch his dad grab the little ones to his shoulder or lean down and hug them. It seemed to him that he had been thought too big for that since the day he was born. And there's a couple other instances of things like that in the beginning of the book where Jess is talking about his father always, you know, he doesn't approve of his art. art, He doesn't approve of the way that he sort of like lives his life. And he's always trying to get him to like man up and be manlier that I think like. For me, the end of the novel where he sort of comes around and is a super supportive dad in his own way, still in that sort of, like, masculine, like, we're not going to talk about our feelings, but I'll be here for you and that's what really matters, was so touching.
0: Yeah. And I think it comes, like you said, full circle really nicely because, like, for example, this moment where he – where the father chases Jess with the pickup truck – he tried to run faster, but his father passed him and stopped the pickup just ahead, then jumped out and ran back. He picked up Jess in his arms as though he were a baby. And it's the exact moment that he had sort of wanted at the beginning. Yeah. And he kind of gets it, um, but certainly not in the way that he, <laughs> he wanted to. Yeah. But his father had the sense of, like, when it would resonate with which kid. Mm-hmm. hmm Hold that thought. We'll be right back. This episode of the Newberry Report is sponsored by Payfully. Renting your home or spare room can be a great way to earn some extra income, but actually getting paid can take months. That's where Payfully comes in. Payfully is a safe and secure way to get paid for your upcoming reservations within 24 hours of them being booked. Payfully deposits directly into your bank account with funds usually available the same day. It works with all the major platforms, Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway, and others, and they've helped thousands of hosts expand their business or cover unexpected expenses. Visit payfully.co. That's P-A-Y-F-U-L-L-Y.co for $20 off your first request with code Newberry. That's payfully.co, promo code Newberry, N-E-W-B-E-R-Y. Hello, listeners. Are you a business owner? Your next customer might be listening right now, just like you are. You can let them know who you are by sponsoring this show. Just email us at hello at citizenracecar.com. That's H-E-L-L-O at citizenracecar.com. And now back to our conversation about Bridge to Terabithia.
1: Well, speaking of the family... Man, didn't you hate his older sister? Oh, <laughs> I was just thinking, that's, that's the section I wanted to talk about. It. That's so funny. All I just wrote was all this. <laughs> I. It's just all awful. But I think that the the worst possible aspect of it is that Brenda, his like bratty, crappy older sister, is the one that breaks the news. Well, so oh, in the, the yeah, previous scene. So no, is when so he goes off. He has his wonderful day. He comes back. He right. sees something's wrong with his family, and then the line is Brenda's pouting voice broke in your girlfriend's dead and Mama thought you were dead too and then in the next scene she goes on to say why aren't you even crying you obviously didn't even like her meanwhile he's like in shock can't even believe it Kubler-Ross denial first (laughs) first stage of grief and it's just awful and she's a character that we never see redeemed she's just there to be this sort of like kind of bratty older sister both her and Ellie Ellie is at least good at manipulating yeah (laughs) But it's so interesting. Like, I don't know. Part of me thinks that like they were written as characters just to be a foil, or like to be a uh, opposite side of the coin to like Maybell to show like how wonderful Maybell is. Not just because she has character and she's uh, she's fun, she's interesting, and all of those things, but that she directly is completely the opposite of her like her crappy older sisters. Yeah. <laughs> and she provide Maybell provides Jesse an
0: opportunity to get outside of himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, arguably, it was the worst thing she could possibly do, try to get into Terabithia when she knew full well, I mean, to the extent that any seven-year-old like knows anything full well, but sort of knew well enough that it was there that Leslie died and that she allows herself to get stuck and scared on a tree trying to cross into Terabithia. She honestly allows just this opportunity to get outside of himself. And uh, to try and save someone else in the way that he had constantly felt guilty since he'd gone on the art trip. Yeah. Oh, I so hard. There's so many heartbreaking moments in the last three chapters, but the moment when um, when she said, "So Mabel says, I just wanted to find you so you wouldn't be so lonesome." She hung her head, but I got too scared. He says to her, "Everybody gets scared sometimes, Mabel. You don't have to be ashamed." saw a flash of Leslie's eyes as she was going into the girls' room to see Jay Savory. Everybody gets scared. And Mabel says, PT ain't scared. Hmm. And he even saw Leslie. That she's able to register that the dog saw Leslie die is just such a painful moment, like such a painful moment for me when I was reading it. Like hmm. This book! <laughs> and I, I, the thing I'm the most conflicted about is that We keep hearing about Jesse's fear. Like, even the very first time they swing over um, to the other side to where Terabithia will be, he's a little frightened by it. You know, Mm -hmm. he's worried about dropping the dog when they get the dog, which, like, what an irresponsible gift. I'm glad her parents were okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, every time he's scared. And that morning, he decides he's too scared officially to go and he won't do it. And I'm really not sure how we're supposed to feel because in the end, his fear is is sort of validated. Validated. Yeah, absolutely. And so now I'm like, well, am I supposed to be scared all the time or are you just supposed to know my limits or is there a lesson or is death just like a horrible
1: thing that happens sometimes? (laughs) It, It set it up so much to be something that like Jess could feel was his fault. And like... It it made me so angry to read that, just because I'm like, you're setting this up. Like he goes off, has this like, literally quote perfect day in the city with his teacher. Yeah, weird. (laughs) And where and and the whole day is thinking about how great his day is and how he was not gonna go to Terabithia, and how. Basically, by him not being there to tell Leslie that he doesn't want to go, she goes anyway and she dies. And I kept th- being like, he's going to blame himself. He's going to blame himself. And that doesn't, it doesn't really come. He doesn't really at least outwardly express that he feels he's responsible for her death, which is great because he's not. Yeah. I think it's a very um, responsible and and great way to think but I was like, man, I was so— He thinks so...
0: about it a little bit, though, because he, he thinks about how he should have invited her, that he yeah. wanted uh, Miss Edmonds, you know, all to himself. But I I think he rightfully doesn't blame himself for—because, like, had he been there and just said, I'm too scared to go, that's no guarantee that she wouldn't have gone. Mm-hmm. And he just would have had to, like, be there when it happened. So, yeah. I mean, if there's any blame he wants to put on himself, which he should not do, it would be in not inviting— her on the art
1: trip. Yeah. Which, was it weird? Is that a thing that teachers normally do? super weird! So strange, right? She She just calls calls up. Calls his house. Hi, it's your teacher. I want to go into the city. Will you come with me? Child with no suit. Is that... ah. Was that normal in the 70s? That's what I don't get. Because now, stranger no danger. Yeah. Like, and no one would do that. Don't stand so close to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, I th- I found it very weird and very awkward. And I kept waiting for, like, the other shoe to drop. I kept waiting for her to reveal the reason she brought him. And we never get that. She's mm-hmm. not like, you know, oh, I just... You remind me of my baby who died. or You know, yeah. some, something out there in the universe. And you never get it. And it, then I was like when we come back to me it just felt like a, a plot choice and that's when I that's the only part I didn't like well I was like we just needed to get him away from Leslie for a day and why not bring back the cool cute teacher that he liked and give him the perfect day that we can then like swipe down to his worst day and that's it felt very plotty to me mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't I wasn't sure how I felt about that. interesting <laughs> The end, this line literally, I think, was like what made me cry reading this book uh, is when he says... You made it that uh, far? <laughs> he's, he thinks to himself, so this is after Leslie's death and he's back in school and no one really like understands his grief and he's still coming to terms with it. He's still kind of in like the denial slash anger phase of his grief. And he says, well, I wanted to be the best, the fastest runner in the school, and now I am. Oh, my gosh. I don't know where this fits into
0: our conversation, but the conversation the father has with him after he's thrown his paints, and that's a, what did you say, that was a damn fool thing to do. Mm -hmm. And he asks his father about going to heaven, and uh, his father says, you worried about, you you ain't worrying about Leslie Burke. It did seem peculiar, but still. Well, Maybell said, Maybell? Maybell aren't God. Yeah, but how do you know what God does? Lordy, don't be a fool. God ain't going to send any little girls to hell.
1: And it was just the right thing to say. <laughs> uh, it was so sweet. But also, like, if we're talking about that direct quote, for me, like, when I read that, I, I remember thinking, like, we don't always think through the repercussions of what we're telling children and, you know, everyone can have, like, the best motives in mind when you're teaching your children about, like, religion or God or X or Y or, like, all of these things that, that you're, you're just trying to, like, bring them into the world and explain how things work. But you make one comment and luckily he said something out loud and his father could sort of, like, debunk that because he mm-hmm. very easily could have just grown up his whole life thinking that Leslie's, like, burning in hell and uh, and the repercussions of, like, what it would mean for him to know that about her. And I'm like, you gotta be so careful with, what, yeah, with how you explain things to kids because like they do see the world in black and white, and there aren't all these like shades of gray and shades of like understanding and like and and. Uh, well, they're
0: building their logic patterns. Yeah, they're building their understanding, and if one of the building blocks seems incongruous with like something that they take in, it's difficult to figure out how to rectify that. Yeah, and it's so funny because even though Maybell is seven and. Uh, Jess is 10, he realizes that he has the same belief system that she has uh, uh, unchecked.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: he has no, no questioning of the belief system he's been indoctrinated with once a year because <laughs> the <laughs> mother had gone to a fight with the minister.
1: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but what did you think about her reaction to finding out that Jess was alive? Because this may have just been, again, I'm, I'm probably just projecting mm-hmm. my own experience and, and sort of how I think I would act in a certain, certain situation. And like you said, everyone reacts to grief differently. But Jess comes in and when the mother finds out that he's not dead, she has this like, oh my God, moment. And I feel like the next logical step would be like, she runs to him and embraces him and she doesn't. She yeah. puts her head down on the table and just sobs. Yeah. Which is... Beautiful and wonderful and, like, obviously yeah. she's she's obviously touched by relief. this moment. Yeah. But but I'm like, really? Yeah. It, it felt so inward. It felt like yeah. – it felt almost selfish. Like, how do well, I feel? Like, how does it affect me if my child dies? And not like this is an actual living human being that just came back from the dead as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I don't ah. – <laughs> ah. I
0: don't know what to do with the value structure presented by this book. I need to move to the – you know, to the outskirts of the suburbs of DC, and just reassess my value structure because, like, what is that? What is uh, that? We, I am a terrified person, but I'm still alive and like okay, and like knock on wood, never broken a bone. You know, like, yeah. and I'm fine with that. And I don't know if this book is reaffirming my belief or like tearing me apart for not taking chances. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know that we're gonna come to a good resolution on this, but it, it. It's unsettling in a really provocative way. Yeah, in a way that like it doesn't pit each either either ideology against the other of like protecting yourself, taking chances and living life. You know, if anything, I think her parents probably blame themselves more than Jess does. We don't get that outright, but I think we get it Mm -hmm. um, enough when they decide to move. So, I think we've thoroughly discussed our feelings on the book. Mm. Shall we move on to our illusion of life? <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah. Great. Um, there were a couple of times that uh, it wasn't so much an illusion as a flat-out statement of how life is. Yeah. My first one is that, and then I have two other ones that are a little more. You have so many. So this is the more overt illusion. This is the one that's barely an illusion. <laughs> sometimes it seemed to him that his—this is about Jess. Sometimes that it seemed to him that his life was as delicate as a dandelion. One little puff from any direction, and it was blown to bits. mm. Oh,
1: feel that? I feel it. But that, to me feels like a very specific allusion to what he's going through right now.:
0: I feel like my life always <laughs> feels like that. <laughs> that one is too hard, just walking down like Sixth Avenue. It's over, you know, oh man. Um and like I said, it's very thinly veiled illusion. Yeah. It pretty much
1: says this is how life is. <laughs> says exactly. Well, mine is very thinly veiled, too, which I like. Uh, there's there's this nice sort of introspection that Jess has that's just put on 100% by Mrs. Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sometimes he just says these really poignant things about life. Um, okay, so the illusion that I pulled out is right around the time that uh, – After Leslie had come into his life and when he just now has realized that she actually seems kind of cool and he wants to be her friend, uh, which he didn't at first. He kind of resented her for being faster than him and all of that. And they're in class and he's kind of inwardly makes this decision that he's just going to be her friend. Uh, And he says he felt there in the teacher's room that it was the beginning of a new season in his life and he chose deliberately to make it so. And I loved that. Oh, yeah. I love that it's not, you know, things don't happen to you. You make things happen in your life. Yeah. And he did. That's exactly what happened. He chose one day to be her friend. And obviously, like, where did it bring him in life? Like, he gained so much from that relationship, mm-hmm. as terrifyingly terrible as it is in the end. like, ugh. Yeah. I love it. That's how I like to live my life. Yeah. You make the world you live in.
0: Yeah. It really endows him with the agency of his own life in such a nice way. Yeah. Here's my other illusion. I think you'll really like this one. Okay. The penultimate scene takes place back at school, um, and Mrs. Myers has asked him to step out in the hallway and um, because he's reacted poorly. He hasn't done what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, and he refuses, so she asks him to wait in the hallway, and he thinks he's going to get yelled at, and he's ready to take it all in. And she comes out and um, almost starts to cry and says to him, you know, connects this moment to when her husband died and he immediately empathizes for for her in a way he's never been able to do. Um, he just clearly is not able to see adults as humans. <laughs> Most children aren't, though. Most aren't. Yeah, Leslie seems to be uniquely interested in her parents. But, um, yeah, he immediately sees her as a human being who has, is capable of love and loss. So they're both, they're both the illusions are in this scene. Hmm. So, um, and she, he, Jess talks about how he's like in his head. He doesn't say this out loud that Leslie's desk is gone when he gets in the school on Monday. And we find out he assumes that the teacher did it or whoever. And um, we find out that Mrs. Myers was equally shocked to see the desk gone when she gets in Mm -hmm. and that she's never lost a student. Uh, The school itself has never lost a student her entire time being there. And uh, Jess says, sometimes, like the Barbie doll, you need to give people something that's for them, not just something that makes you feel good giving it. Because Mrs. Myers had helped him already by understanding that he would never forget Leslie. And um, that's so sweet. Yeah. Because he spends so much time talking about the puppy and, like, how can he get Leslie the right gift? Mm-hmm. and hmm he does realize, at least in this moment, this has been all about him. Even though he thought he was trying to get the best gift for Leslie, he wanted her to see him as having given her a great gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Barbie doll, um, equally valuable, if not more so, to Maybell because she wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> and then she got it. <laughs> she played with it all the time and her little stubby fingers can't open and close the latches oh. on the clothes. Um, okay, but here's my last one. It was Leslie who had taken him from the cow pasture into Terabithia and turned him into a king. He had thought that was it. Wasn't king the best you could be? Now it occurred to him that perhaps Terabithia was like a castle where you came to be knighted. After you stayed for a while and grew strong, you had to move on. Brad and Leslie, even in Terabithia, tried to push back the walls of his mind and make him see beyond to the shining world, huge and terrible and beautiful and very fragile. Handle with care. Everything even the predators, Mm. which I thought was a great way to live your life.
1: I have a new illusion based on your <laughs> illusion. Can I say it real quick? It inspired illusion. It did. Yeah. Uh, when they're trying to decide how to act f- against Janice Avery. Yes. The school bully. And she's bully. And but she's crying. And and Leslie, who usually is the more yeah. open and forward thinking one, is the one saying like, no way in hell I'm going into Janice Avery. Like, that's a death march. I'm not going to do that. And he says and just thinks, how could he explain it to her? And he says, Leslie, if she was an animal predator, we'd be obligated to try and help her. And I love it. Yeah. Because it's true. Like the, we, we, we kind of force this dichotomy between like people and animals. Yeah. Ugh. I know. I get
0: very confused. I, I, I love it. Yeah. It's good. It's a good book. <laughs> yeah. Should we rate it? Yes. What would you rate this book?
1: Do you have one?
0: I would give it... One half hour of children screaming songs very loudly from the teacher's lounge. <laughs> <laughs> Just packed, a whole packed half hour of this land is your land.
1: I'm going to give it one perfect puppy,
0: mm.
1: both a guard and a jester. Yay! <laughs> oh, that's so good. P.T.
0: P.T. I love you. He's not still alive. <laughs> 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 Not a dead dog book, though. Well, now it is, Carrie. Yeah. It's a dead girl. Oh, oh man, that's sad. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this report on *Bridge to Terabithia*. Uh, <laughs> join us in two weeks when we'll be exploring the 1979 winner, *The Westing, Westing Game. Game*. I can't wait. <laughs> Me neither. It's my favorite book. It's a whodunit, so oh. we highly recommend you read that one before you listen Please to Please
1: read it. Spoilers will be
0: had. Great. <sighs> All right. Thank you so much, Carolyn Burns, for joining me. Thank you, Carrie. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Join the conversation and tell us what you thought about the book on Facebook.com slash Newberry Report. That's N E W B E R Y Report. And at Newberry Report on Twitter, and never miss a show by making sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and all your favorite podcast apps. You can also find our show and some other terrific podcasts at www.racecarradio.com. The Newberry Report is hosted and recorded by me, Carrie Kasten. My co-host is Carolyn Burns. It was edited by Austin Cologne. Our executive producer is David Hoffman. The Newberry Report is a production of Race Car Radio. And join us for our next episode where we'll be discussing the winner from 1979 The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin.